0: Coco Seco! Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 124 and it's the second episode in a small mini-wander into the history of the island of Cuba. We left off in episode 123 at just the point where Spain had landed on, commandeered, and then conquered Cuba. and Thereafter, the Spanish applied the usual 15th and 16th century colonial ways to the island and its inhabitants. In today's episode, we wander through several hundred years of colonial rule by Spain, including its mother country restrictions on trade, the focus on the two major industries of sugarcane and coffee, the eventual importation of a massive number of slaves from Africa to create the labor force in scale for those industries, and finally, conflict within Cuba, which eventually ignited the march toward independence from Spain. So. Back to the beginning of things for a second. You know, Christopher Columbus never set foot on the United States proper as we know it. And why do I mention this? Well, I mention it because those that were here in the American colony under England developed in a much different way. And that way eventually led to a path toward national identity. And then, of course, independence as a nation. And our path here in the U.S. was in full swing by the mid-1700s. Here in the States, we would accomplish independence from the mother country some 125 years ahead of the islands. The point here about Cuba is that the way society developed on the island as a colony of Spain in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s was not conducive to the rapid development of a national identity. Sure, There is no doubt that generations in America between 1740 and 1790 consisted of some very incredible men and women who had unity of purpose. They had the intellect, the will, the courage to seize the moment and to make a national identity emerge in the consciousness of the populace. And with a little good luck and a lot of sacrifice, they made a new nation and a nation independent of England. And they made it a reality. Not so in the islands. Independence for Cuba from Spain would not come until the start of the 20th century. But the process of revolution and independence began much earlier than that in Cuba. In fact, it began very early in the 1800s. But it would take another hundred years to achieve it. In the meantime, there would be epic events that successfully built on one another to create a national identity. And even more for that national identity to matriculate into real action that achieved independence. It was right around 1868 that the first real battle in war took place to try and secure independence from Spain and it was a slow slog from there. It would take some 30 years more after that with about half of those years spent in peace and about half engaged in civil war. Cuban independence would eventually happen after the Spanish-American War in 1898 as the United States finally stepped in and tipped the scales during the Cuban Revolution. But there would be a price for Cuba and Cubans to pay, for the American intervention would be long and deep. Well, let's try to cover a good part of all of this part of the story and do it in this episode and in episode 125, which is to follow. Then after that we can start to get into the juicier side of Cuba in the 20th century under American influence with mob involvement on the island beginning in a big way around the 1920s. Yes siree, so many more good stories and material to come. Thanks for going on this wander with me. I think you'll enjoy it. So, without further ado, let's listen to the rest of episode 124 set conquistadors were there colonies were being born the two main cities were being established one on the east side of the island at santiago de cuba and one on the west side of the island at havana cuba runs long from east to west but narrower north to south and it's sort of rectangular crescent shape as the focal country in the caribbean The arriving Spanish would bring diseases from Europe that were unknown to the native Taino tribes, and it would not be long after that when virtually all of the tribes in Cuba were wiped out by the natural spread of disease brought by these Europeans. And if disease did not get the Indians, then the inhuman acts of the conquerors did, as they slaughtered Indians or captured them, and then moved and segregated them away from the Spanish settlements. Founding a colony was all about confiscating the natural resources and allocating the spoils. So the natural products of Cuba were exported, at least in the beginning, almost exclusively back to Spain. As we said earlier, it was the Spanish who established sugar and tobacco as Cuba's primary products. And the island soon supplanted Hispaniola as the prime island in the Caribbean, from which Spain would rely on for these resources. Spain's economic policy decisions were overt and they would have an immediate effect from early on. They would seal Cuba's role in the 1600s and 1700s as an island possession, primarily engaged in growing these two crops, and its economy is primarily a producer of these two products. And the lack of economic diversity along with Spain's decision to adopt restrictive trade laws applicable to Cuba. Trade laws, which substantially limited Cuba's trading partner to Spain only, would, over time, cause Cuba to lag in economic development. In those days, colonial Cuba was a frequent target of buccaneers, pirates, and French corsairs seeking Spanish New World riches especially during the time frame when Cuba was a closed trading partner in the early years of Spain's colonial rule. In response to repeated raids, defenses were bolstered throughout the island during the 16th century. In Havana, for instance, the fortress of Castillo de las Tres Reyes Magos del Maro was built to deter potential invaders. But in Cuba, the topic always seems to come back to sugar. So let's take a second to talk about sugar. There were advances in the processing of sugarcane crops that took place in the 17th and 18th centuries, processes that ended up being pioneered in other Caribbean islands first, somewhat a result of Spain's insular handling of Cuba and its foreign trade restrictions. And so other islands, including Barbados, Jamaica, and St. Domingue would gain the early lead in the race for sugar production. but. It wouldn't be long before that lead was erased. Meanwhile, by the early 1800s, most of the world's major powers, including Spain, were beginning to display some level of moral consciousness related to slavery. In a series of incremental policy moves, the slave trade would have significant twists and turns during this generation. Initially, Spain adopted a curious approach. They restricted Cuba's access to the slave trade, Yet, as much as they were saying no to slaves, no apparently meant yes, if it, if it could be done in a politically more palatable way. What Spain did was to force the island to rely instead on foreign merchants, granting them something known as an Asientos to protect the slave trade on Spain's behalf. Asientos were monopoly contracts granted by the Spanish crown and they were granted to certain merchants in order to import slaves. I guess if it wasn't done directly by the Spanish government or Spaniards themselves, and it was done by those other guys, it would be okay. Well, that approach didn't last for long. More to come on that in a minute. The advances in the system of sugarcane refinement did not reach Havana until the Haitian Revolution occurred in the nearby French colony of St. Domingue. We now know that place as the Dominican Republic. The Haitian Revolution forced thousands of French planters to seek refuge as they fled St. Domingue in favor of Cuba and other islands in the West Indies as well. This group brought their expertise with them to Cuba. Expertise in sugar refining and coffee growing and it really revved up the production in eastern Cuba in the 1790s and early 1800s. In the case of sugar, They began to use water mills, enclosed furnaces, and steam engines to produce higher quality sugar in a much more efficient technique than elsewhere in the Caribbean, and certainly better than it had previously been done in Cuba. Spain also would eventually open up the Cuban trade ports to other merchants, who were not exclusively trading with Spain, and the effect was to quickly establish new markets and trading partners for Cuban sugar and other products. Eventually, many of these markets would become part of the intermingling of trade between the United States and Cuba. The island was perfect for growing sugar, being dominated by rolling plains with rich soil and adequate rainfall. By the early 1800s, the Cuban sugar plantations had become the most important world producer of sugar as a result of all of this. That is, thanks to this almost surreptitious expansion of slavery through the Hacientos and a relentless focus on improving the island's sugar technology once refining techniques became available and began to modernize the industry. Adopting modern refining techniques was especially important in this time frame because the British passed the Slave Trade Act of 1807, which abolished the slave trade in the British Empire slavery itself was abolished by the British in the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. The Brits were a major supplier of slave labor to the Spaniards in Cuba through the Asientos contracts and as the British government set about trying to eliminate the transatlantic slave trade the labor supply would be profoundly affected in Cuba. And as a result of these new pieces of British law and legislation there was a real impact on the sugar industry in Cuba. Under British diplomatic pressure in 1817, Spain agreed to abolish the slave trade in Cuba by the year 1820 in exchange for a payment from their good friends in the British government. Yes, the British government actually paid the Spanish government to stop engaging in it. Only governments can do this sort of thing. As might be expected, Announcing the sunset of the legality of slave trading, with the remaining three-year window still available on the island, created a run on the banks, so to speak. Cubans were allowed to import slaves in the time legally left before the abolition came into full effect in 1820. Over the ensuing three-year period, some 100,000 new slaves were imported from Africa. In other words, 100,000 more African people were kidnapped and forced into slavery. And even beyond that, in spite of the new restrictions that went into full effect in 1820, a large-scale illegal slave trade continued to flourish in the years that followed. The boom in Cuba's sugar industry made it necessary for the country to improve its transportation infrastructure. Planters needed safe and efficient ways to transport the sugar from the plantations that were geographically inland. As you might expect, many new roads were built and even some railroads were established to speed up the delivery as sugarcane is actually a perishable crop. Many people don't think of it that way because processed sugar can sit in the sugar bowl on the kitchen table for a very long time, but raw sugarcane must be cut and processed relatively quickly. Let's back up for a second and tell the history of British involvement in Cuba because their involvement Was the primary driver of a pivot toward the Americas, but it happened in just a few moments of fleeting history. The British government stayed out of Cuba until the 1740s. Then, around that time, things changed. The British Royal Navy launched an invasion, actually capturing Guantanamo Bay in 1741 during the War of Jenkins' Ear with Spain. (laughs) What a name! War of Jenkins' Ear. Edward Vernon was the British admiral who devised the scheme and he saw his 4,000 occupying troops invade the island and then have to retreat as Spanish troops proved resistant. And more critically, an epidemic ensued which forced the good admiral to withdraw his fleet to the nearby island of British Jamaica. While the raid was not successful, the British had gotten a taste of Cuba and it would be only seven years later spawned as a result of a European dispute that arose from the War of the Austrian succession that the British would again carry out an unsuccessful attack against the city of Santiago de Cuba in 1748. Additionally, a skirmish between British and Spanish naval squadrons occurred in the same year. For the British, nothing had proved successful yet in prying Cuba away from the Spaniards. But then, not long after that, The Seven Years' War erupted in 1754, and the dispute was primarily amongst European powers, but the actual battles were fought across three continents, including the Spanish Caribbean. Some of us know this period as the French and Indian Wars here in North America. In some ways, it may truly have been one of the first global wars. During this time, Spain had an alliance with the French that put them into direct conflict with the British. As a result, the British once again had an excuse to go on the hunt for Cuba. In 1762, a British expedition of five warships and 4,000 troops set out from Portsmouth, England, and their mission was straightforward it was to capture Cuba and take it from the Spanish. The British arrived on the 6th of June, 1762, and by August, they had Havana under siege. When Havana finally surrendered, The admiral of the British fleet, George Keppel, who was the third Earl of Albemarle, entered the city as a new colonial governor and he took control of the whole western part of the island of Cuba. That's of course the portion where Havana is located. The arrival of the British immediately opened up trade with their North American and Caribbean colonies. And while the British rule was to be extremely short-lived, it nevertheless caused a real pivot In what was to be a rapidly forming connection in Cuban society with the Americas Havana had become the third largest city in the Americas and after the capture by the British in this next period it was to enter into an era of sustained development and closening ties with North America but as I said the British occupation of the city proved to be short-lived Pressure came to the British government from London sugar merchants fearing a decline in sugar prices. Imagine that. Remember at this time, just like cotton was king in the southern states, well, sugar was king in Cuba. And what happened? Well, in the bigger picture of it, helped to force a series of negotiations with the Spanish over colonial territories. Less than a year after Havana was seized by the British The Peace of Paris was signed by the three warring powers, ending the Seven Years' War. Basically, the outcome of the war had been that Great Britain, in consort with Prussia, had defeated France and Spain. And the spoils of the war would remake the world map once again, and particularly in the Caribbean. You might find the remake of the map related to this war interesting, so I'll take just a minute on it, in a mini-wander, During the Seven Years' War, Great Britain had conquered the French colonies of Canada and a series of Caribbean islands, including Guadalupe, St. Lucia, Martinique, Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and Tobago. There were other small locations captured by each side during the war, but they are not consequential for this discussion. In the treaty, most of the territories were restored to their original owners, but Britain, as the winner, was allowed to keep considerable gains. France and Spain restored all their conquests to Britain and Portugal. Where it gets interesting for us in our story here is that Britain, even as the victor, gave back their interests in Manila and Havana, restoring Spanish rule over these territories. And Guadalupe, Martinique, St. Lucia, Gore, and the Indian Trading posts were restored to France. In return, France recognized the sovereignty of Britain over Canada, Dominica, Grenada, St. Vincent, and the Grenadines, and Tobago. You know, the famous British Prime Minister, William Pitt, was so set on the British keeping Havana that even in ill health, he was astonished to hear that the treaty was likely to give Havana back to the Spanish, to give Cuba back to Spain. He made an impassioned plea for it to remain British, but to no avail. France also ceded the eastern half of French Louisiana to Britain, that is, the area from the Mississippi River to the Appalachian Mountains heading east. France had already secretly given Louisiana to Spain in the Treaty of Fountain Blue in 1762, but Spain did not take possession until 1769. Spain ceded East Florida to Britain. France, at the end of the day, lost all of its territory in mainland North America except for the territory of Louisiana, west of the Mississippi River. France gained the return of its sugar colony, Guadalupe, which, if you can believe it, at the time was considered more valuable than Canada. Okay, that was a lot of detail, and it was really only a small part of what was actually traded there were a lot of islands and territories passed back and forth, like trading cards as a result of that peace and treaty. But it was worth wandering through relevant parts of it, one of the largest, most complex land swaps in the history of the world. So what was the major takeaway from all of that for us here in this JFK wander? Well, Cuba, after a very short stint trying to adopt English with an accent, was back to speaking Spanish full-time. Some might say very simply that the Brits simply traded away Cuba for Florida in the deal. As the deal was brokered, the French advised the Spanish that it was wise to make this trade because if Spain declined the offer from the British, it might result in Spain ultimately losing Mexico, which was another Spanish territory at the time. And even perhaps much of the South American mainland, which the Spanish also controlled, So they did just that. They made the deal. But Spain, in its ever-weakening circumstance, would later get the better part of this. They waited a few more years, and just when the British were starting to get distracted with this little thing called the American Revolution, in 1781, the Spanish governor of Louisiana made a move, and he reconquered Florida for Spain. Obviously, that game was not over, as Florida was returned to the United States in 1819. This was a time in the Americas and in the Caribbean where territories and islands were traded amongst countries like pieces on a chessboard. So let's turn now to what all of this meant for the island of Cuba and its search for becoming an independent nation. Just like in the United States, there were many world events that were coming together in society to shape its views of the rights of man and the reformism that would come as the world began the big switch to republican principles and democratic government versus the old world models of rule by royalty and church under divine right all of us know the story of the american revolution which we all popularly think of as an event that had its crescendo on the fourth of july 1776 july 4th The date our forefathers signed the Declaration of Independence. The American victory had spawned the desire of men and women everywhere in the colonial world to work for independence. Then add to that the undercurrent of abolitionism surrounding the matter of slavery and you have a pretty interesting set of influences that helped to move things forward during this time in Cuba. But even with all that reforms and the momentum toward independence moved slower In the Caribbean colonies than they had in America. In 1791 in Haiti there was a successful slave revolt and that changed some things. Soon there would be similar revolts in Cuba and they would accelerate. Despite all of that the slave population would increase tremendously over the next 30 years as the powerful tug of economics would win out over the rights of man. One of the first of such slave movements in Cuba was headed by the free black Nicholas Morales, and it was aimed at gaining equality between mulatto and whites, among other things. Morales' plot was discovered in Bayamo in 1795, and the conspirators were jailed. Bayamo is on the southeast end of the island. When you get into the period around 1810, a lot was going on back in Spain and in Europe and as a result of the political upheavals caused by the Iberian Peninsular War of 1807 through 1814 and of Napoleon's removal of Ferdinand VII from the Spanish throne in 1808, a Western Separatist rebellion emerged among the Cuban Creole aristocracy right around 1809 or 1810. During this time frame, one of its leaders, Joaquin Infante, drafted Cuba's first constitution, declaring the island a sovereign state, declaring the country's wealthy to be the appropriate ruling class, and vowing to maintain slavery as long as it was necessary for agriculture. This new group went on to establish a social classification based on skin color and declared Catholicism the official religion. This upper-class conspiracy of sorts by the landowners, also failed, and the main leaders were sentenced to prison, and they were deported to Spain. In 1812, another mixed-race abolitionist conspiracy arose, and this time it came from the ground and not the castle. It was organized by José Antonio Aponte. Aponte was a free black carpenter in Havana. Unfortunately, he and others were executed the Spanish themselves made a new constitution in 1812 and it established a number of liberal political and commercial policies which were welcomed in Cuba, but they also curtailed a number of older liberties between 1810 and 1814. The Island elected six representatives to the Cortes, which was essentially the Spanish parliamentary construct. And they also elected a local provincial law enforcement apparatus. Nevertheless, All of these reforms proved to be ephemeral. And why? Well, Ferdinand VII, the King of Spain, suppressed them when he returned to the throne in 1814 after the overthrow of Napoleon. Meanwhile, around this time, some Cubans were inspired by the successes of Simon Bolivar in South America, who was to become the hero of heroes in South America when it came to the idea of independence and revolution. After the expulsion of Napoleon, the Spanish Constitution was fully restored in 1820. Unfortunately for Cuba, it wasn't long before heavy-handed Spanish rule would once again come onto the scene in Cuba. In 1823, King Ferdinand VII once again takes aggressive steps, and with French help and with the approval of what was known as the Quintuple Alliance, the king managed yet again to abolish constitutional rule in Spain, and he reestablished absolutism. As a result, the national militia of Cuba, established by the Constitution and seen by the king as a potential instrument for liberal agitation, was dissolved. The Spanish king installed a permanent executive military commission that was now under the orders of the governor. Newspapers were closed, elected provincial representatives were removed, and other liberties were suppressed. This suppression and the success of independent movements elsewhere led to a notable rise in this period of Cuban nationalism. It was a real pivot point for the Cubans. The Spanish were determined to double down and create a Cuban society that leaned toward deeper connection with Spain, and they did everything to try and water down the forces of revolution that were already brewing on the island. Between 1810 and 1826, some 20,000 royalist refugees from the Latin American revolutions arrived in Cuba. They were joined by others who left Florida and came to Cuba when Spain ceded it to the United States in 1819. These influxes of loyal Spaniards slowed down the appetite for revolution and independence in Cuba as they strengthened loyalist pro-Spanish sentiments on the island. A number of groups formed confederations in the 1820s and 1830s to push for independence, but ultimately all of these groups failed. But they were the seeds of what was ultimately to come, These groups included leading national figures who would bring wider recognition to the movement. In 1826, the first armed uprising for independence took place in Puerto Principe, in the Camagüey province, and it was led by Francisco de Aguero and Andreas Manuel Sanchez. Aguero was a white man, and Sanchez was a mulatto. You can see in the history of the rebel movement in Cuba, that it was common for men of color to be joined with white men in a combined struggle for their freedom. Both of these men were executed and some say they became the first popular martyrs of the Cuban independence movement. The 1830s saw a surge of activity from the reformist movement but it bore no fruit. Cubans remained deprived of the right to send representatives to the Spanish parliament and Madrid stepped up to deliver an even higher dose of repression in Cuba this period of time included an awakening around the slavery movement in cuba black revolts in cuba increased and were put down with mass executions one of the most significant was the Conspiración de la escalera or the ladder conspiracy which started in march of 1843 and it continued into 1844 the conspiracy took its name from a torture method in which slaves were tied to a ladder and whipped until they confessed or died The latter conspiracy involved free blacks and enslaved, as well as white intellectuals and professionals. Hundreds of individuals died from this torture. In some ways, the period 1820 to 1860 or so was similar in Cuba as it was in the United States. The cauldron that slavery was, was heating up. And for Cuba, the seeds of revolution, the thoughts around abolition and independence, were all being sown simultaneously which made the entire circumstance that much more complicated. Slavery had not yet been abolished yet, but it would be influenced by what had happened in the U.S. It would take Cuba about 25 more years after Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation and our Congress passed the 13th Amendment and abolished slavery. It would take that much longer to abolish slavery in Cuba. But until then, the unresolved issue of slavery would also foment the entire revolutionary mindset of the peoples of Cuba, and it would add fuel to fire onto this issue of national independence. In the 1860s, Cuba had two more liberal-minded governors, two gents named Serrano and Dolci, who encouraged the creation of a reformist political party, despite the fact that political parties were forbidden but they were followed by a very reactionary governor, and his name was Francisco Lersundi. And Lersundi basically suppressed all liberties granted by the previous two governors, and he maintained a pro-slavery regime. That didn't sit well with people who were truly beginning to taste a bit of democratic-like rule and reforms. The time was now ripe for an explosion. So on October 10, 1868, the landowner, Carlos Manuel de Cespades declared Cuban independence one more time and freedom for his slaves. This began the Ten Years' War, which lasted from 1868 to 1878. In many ways, the Ten Years' War was the war that lit the fuse and set the stage for the almost 30-year period that would see war, convulsion, peace, reforms, And then finally more war and the final expulsion of Spain from the island. It was a tumultuous time all around in the Caribbean in general. The Dominican Restoration War was going on between 1863 and 1865, right in the middle of this first internal Cuban conflict. And it had another profound immigration effect on Cuba. It brought to Cuba, right in the middle of the Ten Years' War, an unemployed mass of former Dominican white and light-skinned mulattos who had served with the Spanish army in the Dominican Republic before being evacuated to Cuba and discharged from the army. Some of these former soldiers joined the new Revolutionary Army in Cuba, the rebels fighting the Spanish crown, and they actually provided its initial training and leadership. With reinforcements and guidance from the Dominicans, the Cuban rebels defeated Spanish detachments, they cut railway lines, and they gained dominance over vast sections of the eastern portion of the island. The Spanish government used their own voluntary corps to commit harsh and very bloody acts against the Cuban rebels, and the Spanish atrocities simply fueled the growth of insurgent forces in eastern Cuba. However, they failed to export the revolution to the western side of the island. So the part of the island that Havana is in did not see the activity of the war like the east did. There was a reason for that. Right during the middle of the war, a fortified military line, or Trocha, was built between 1869 and 1872, and it bisected the whole island, basically divided it in two, kind of like a modern-day Hadrian's Wall. The Spanish erected it to prevent rebel forces from moving westward from the Oriente province. It was the largest fortification ever built by the Spanish in the Americas. By 1876, the Spanish government had deployed more than 250,000 troops to Cuba, finally, being able to free up Spanish soldiers for the suppression of the revolt after ending another war. On February 10, 1878, General Arsenio Martinez Campos negotiated the Pact of Zanjan with the Cuban rebels and the rebel general, Antonio Maceo, surrendering on the 28th of May, 1878. That act ended the Ten Years' War. Spain sustained 200,000 casualties, mostly from disease. The rebels sustained 100 to 150,000 dead, and the islands sustained hundreds of millions of dollars in property damage. It was a devastating period of bloody internal conflict. The Pact of Zanjón promised the release from slavery of all slaves who had fought for Spain during the war, and slavery was legally abolished in the 1880s, making Cuba the second-to-last country in the Western Hemisphere to abolish slavery, with Brazil being the last. As I said, it was a bloody war, and it had ended in a form of peace between the rebels and the Spanish metropole, and there would be some time in between giving both sides time to lick their wounds. But freedom had not been achieved yet, so there was more work to be done by the Cuban rebels. It wasn't long, though, until both sides were unhappy with some elements of the peace treaty, and that led to a second war associated with the independence movement. That war was dubbed the Little War, and it took place during a relatively brief period just during 1879 and 1880. The Little War had the same origins as the Ten Years' War, and in many ways, it was a continuation of it. Following his release after the Pact of Zanjón, Calixto Garcia traveled to New York City, and he organized the Cuban Revolutionary Committee with other revolutionaries. In 1878, he issued a manifesto against Spanish rule of Cuba. This met with approval amongst other revolutionary leaders, and war began on August 26, 1879. The revolution was led by Garcia as he was one of the few revolutionary leaders who did not sign the Pact of Zanjan. The revolutionaries faced many problems which were difficult to overcome. They lacked experienced leaders other than Garcia, and they had a dire shortage of weapons and ammunition. Further, they had no foreign allies to help them, and the population was both exhausted from the Ten Years' War and really lacked faith in the possibility of victory, and most of the populace desired peace instead. In the west of the island, most of the revolutionary leaders were arrested. The rest of the leaders were forced to capitulate throughout 1879 and 1880, and by September 1880, the rebels had been completely defeated. What happened in the aftermath is significant. Although the Spanish had made promises of reform, they were ineffective. The Spanish passed a new constitution in 1876, and that was applied to Cuba in 1881. But this changed little, if anything, on the island of Cuba. Although Cuba was able to send representatives to the Cortes Generales, the Spanish parliament, in practice, the representatives were among the most conservative in Cuba. And at the end of the day, these men would do little to move forward the progressive agendas that were percolating underneath the veneer of the populace. Slavery was abolished but things were not yet settled internally. Even though there had been advancements during this period, it was not enough. And movement on the question of Cuba becoming a nation would have to wait. It would result in another uprising 15 years later, and it would prove to be the final struggle for independence from Spain. It would formerly be known as the Cuban War of Independence, and which came to be known as the War of 95. Join us in the next episode, episode 125, when we make the turn to the 20th century and tell the story of the final battle by Cuba for its independence from Spain. Thank you for listening to episode 124 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.